Welcome to the Alpha Ministries podcast. Alpha Ministries is a recovery church. Our mission is to teach individuals and institutions to recognize and apply the gospel of grace, building stronger families and communities. Join us today as Pastor John Glenn teaches on biblical self-awareness. You will learn what God has done for us that we could not do for ourselves and what it means to be fully adopted into the family of God. We hope you are encouraged and built up in the faith. If you have any questions or comments, be sure to email us and look for some information about us in the show notes. Here's John. All of us have, from time to time, a very serious problem with our self-image. We have a feeling like we are just worthless, like there is nothing that we can possibly do that would improve our situation or that would help others in any way. But we're not alone. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 and verse 14 had the same problem with a negative self-image. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. I want us to look at Romans chapter 7 verse 14 where Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now, this statement, I am carnal, sold under sin, illustrates the negative self-image that we often find ourselves in. The word carnal here is used in the Old English. doesn't necessarily mean uh, wicked or something of that nature. It just means natural. And Paul's view of himself as being carnal or natural as opposed to and in contrast with the spiritual nature of the law is what gives us the idea that he has a negative self-image. He is not thinking of himself as being one with Christ at this moment. He is not thinking of himself as being a brand new creature created in Christ at this moment. He is not thinking of himself as having any power at all. In regards to his evaluation of himself in comparison to the law, he is thinking of himself as being worthless. He is thinking of himself, therefore, as being insecure unloved, unacceptable, unforgiven. He is thinking of himself here as being insignificant, unimportant, having no meaning or purpose in his life. And certainly he's thinking of himself as being inadequate to keep the law of God. And so he's got a very negative self-image. Now I want you to notice that Paul has this negative self-image after he was a Christian, after he had been born again. He has this negative self-image after he had been called of God to a service as an apostle. He has this negative self-image even after he had been used of God to write Romans 6, to actually, through the, the power of the Spirit, put down on paper through a process we call journaling, to actually write with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the glorious truth of the gospel. And what this illustrates for all of us is it's quite possible for us to be secure in God's love, to be significant in God's plan, and still have a poor self-image, and still feel worthless. It's to that problem now that we want to direct our attention. Let me diagram on the board again for you the issue as it relates to the conflict that you and I have within ourselves on a daily basis to some extent or another. 
You recall the gospel that when we receive Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, this natural person that we were, that is naturally worthless, was crucified with Christ, buried with him, and a brand new person is raised up. We represent that new person by this little solid triangle in here. This new person is holy and without blame before God and love. This new person is righteous with the righteousness of Christ that's been given to him freely as a gift of God by grace through our faith. This new person is more than a conqueror, is a victor and not a victim. But you see, this new person is living in a body that still has the presence of a sin nature or what we refer to as the flesh. And because there is a new person living inside a body that has the presence of the flesh yet remaining in the subconscious mind or heart, there follows a, a very violent conflict inwardly in our soul between the new man that we are in Christ and the flesh. And this is what Paul is dealing with right here in Romans chapter 7, verse 14. He's dealing with this violent conflict within himself between what God says he is in Romans 6 and what he feels that he is. In verse 14, the statement, I am carnal, sold under sin, means that he has a negative self-image here, a poor self-image. He is not seeing himself as he really was. Now, I'm convinced that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote the entire book of letter, uh, the entire letter, rather, of Romans. I'm convinced of that. There's no doubt in my mind. But I'm also equally convinced that he wrote it in segments. I don't believe that God gave him the whole book of Romans all at once through the leadership of the Holy Spirit, but he wrote parts of it, and then he would go to sleep and go about his daily activities, and then he would get up and he would write some more as the Spirit moved him to write this down. And so I think there's probably some sort of a time lag between when he wrote Romans 6, especially 6.11, and the time that he wrote Romans 7.14. That time lag, however long it may have been, was long enough for him to forget Romans 6.11. And in case you've already forgotten Romans 6.11, which most of us do, let me remind you again what he tells us in Romans 6.11. He says, count on the fact that you are dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God. Now, the obvious problem here is that Paul is not counting on that fact by the time we get to Romans 7.14. In fact, he is counting on the fact that he is carnal, sold under sin, or he is dead to God and alive unto sin. The question is, why? Why is Paul seeing himself as being carnal, sold under sin? Why is he seeing himself as being worthless? The answer, I think, comes from the preceding verses that we've already looked at. The verses concerning the spirituality of the law, God's righteous demands and his expectations, and his inability to meet up to that law. That law always puts us in a state of condemnation. That law always brings to us the state of mind that says we're carnal, sold under sin. And so Paul is fighting a battle with his own identity here, a battle that's very much like your battle or my battle on a daily basis. He's fighting a battle of faith to believe the gospel about who God says he's made him to be. And I want you to see in these next few verses how he actually works through this battle. And I want you to see how the Spirit leads him through this battle as he records this, for, records this for us in these next few verses. He 
starts out in verse 15 by saying, for that which I do, I allow not, or literally, I don't understand. This is one of the reasons why Paul thinks of himself as being carnal sold under sin, is because he can't understand his own behavior. Haven't you experienced that type of thing before? Haven't you done things or said things, and you say, I don't know why I do that. I don't know why I said what I just said. I don't know why I keep on doing this time and time again. Well, Paul's in that confused state. He can't understand his behavior. He goes on further to explain. For that which I do, I allow not, or I understand not, for what I would, that is, what I want to do, what I desire to do, that do I not. But what I hate, what I don't want to do, that do I. Doesn't this sound familiar? It sounds all too familiar to me. When I want to do what's right, I can't do it. When I don't want to do what's wrong, I do it anyhow. This is a typical conflict that all of us as believers struggle with on a daily basis to one degree or another. And Paul is confused about this because he has lost control of his behavior. This is really, verse 15 is really a statement of the loss of control. He cannot control his life. When he wants to do one thing, he can't do it. When he doesn't want to do this other thing, he does it anyhow. He has no control, and he's confused about that. Now, let's look at our diagram again to see why he's lost control, so we can bring into our own awareness of how it is we lose control. The reason I diagram the new man as being in Christ as being a smaller triangle than the larger original person that we were in the flesh is because this new person we are, even though it's a brand new creature in Christ, is less experienced, less powerful in itself than the flesh. Now let's remember again what the flesh means. The flesh is the sum total of all the conditioning we've had throughout our whole lifetime and all of our experiences that's been stored in our subconscious mind that is opposed to God that does not believe what God has to say about us, that does not seek after God. The flesh is that self-centered nature, that sinful, rebellious nature that we've struggled with and we've had all our lives. It has been operating to control and dominate our bodies our entire life. It is always at work and has always been at work. You see, when we receive Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, the flesh was not crucified, only the old person that we were that produced this flesh. The old man, he tells us back in chapter 6 of Romans, was crucified, not the flesh. The flesh still remains as part of this body, and it's indicated through memory studies, by the way, that the flesh actually, uh, as we're describing as sinful nature, probably resides in every cell of our physical bodies. The flesh yet remains, and that flesh is diametrically opposed to God and therefore opposed to who God has made us to be, this new man. And I diagram it in this fashion so that you all realize how much more flesh there is than the potential you have as a new man in Christ. And Paul is coming to grips with this. He is, in, in a sense, mourning the fact that he cannot, even though he's a brand new person, deal with this flesh because when he the new person he is 
wants to do what's right, he doesn't do it because of this flesh. When he, the real person he is, doesn't want to do what's wrong, he winds up doing it anyhow because this flesh takes over. This is the picture that's being presented now. But note the light that begins to enter in. And I think in verse 16, he begins to remember now what he had written before under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He begins to remember now, back in chapter 6, his new identity. Note how, how it shows up here in verse 16. He says, if then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now there are three eyes in this one verse. And I want you to try to label these three eyes with me carefully. And let's use again our diagram on the board. The first eye, he says, is that which does what the second eye doesn't want to do. So he says, if then I, meaning his flesh, does not do what I, meaning the new man, wants to do, then he says, I, the new man, consent unto the law, at least, that it is good. Now what he's talking about here is a struggle that is real familiar to all of us. He's talking about a struggle for identity, a struggle to believe who we really are, a struggle to believe in spite of what we've done, in spite of what we're experiencing, in spite of our feelings about all of that, what God says is true about us in Romans 6. We are struggling now to believe that we are a new person in spite of all the evidence to the contrary. And Paul, when he says, if I do that which I would not, it dawns on him at that moment. Now, wait a minute. Which I am I talking about? Am I talking about me as the flesh? Or am I talking about me as the new man? And I think at that moment the Spirit clicked the little light bulb on and did what the job of the Spirit is to do, to call to our remembrance the things that he's told us. And at that moment he began to, began to think, now wait a minute, I am dead to sin, alive unto God. I am a new person that desires to do what God wants him to do. And so he goes on to finish out this, or this verse in verse 16, with the statement, I, the new person I am, consent unto the law that it is good. At least I, the new person I am, wants to do what's good. Now it's important that we stop here and make a little practical application. When you find yourself in this struggle, this intense struggle with doing what's right and not being able to, or not doing what's wrong and still falling into it, you're going to find yourself in need of, first of all, identifying who you really are. As I'll reveal later in this chapter, towards the end of the chapter, the only persons that really worry about whether they do right or wrong are brand new people in Christ. Did you know that? The only persons who want to do what's right are people that God has worked miraculously in their life to give them a new nature that desires his will in their life. This is what Paul is hanging on to. It's a, it's a thin thread, but nonetheless an important beginning point. He is hanging on to the fact that at least he desires to do what's right. At least he has the want to inside. At least he has a desire for the right reason to do that which is good, to consent unto the law that it is good. Now, as he begins to go on in explanation of this conflict within, Notice how he separates out his true identity from the flesh. He says in verse 17, 
Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. Notice that clear separation. What he's saying, in effect, it is, a, is not me that's doing the sin. That's not who I am. I am no longer this sinful nature of flesh, but it's this brand new person that is not doing the sin, but it's this flesh that's doing it. Now this sounds amazingly like a cop-out, and we need to be careful about this. I don't know what it sounds like to you, but when I first read this and I first began to understand what it was saying, it sounded to me like, Paul, I think you're just kind of copping out here. I think you're just kind of weaseling a little bit because you're, you're walking around saying, now it's not me that's sinning. Well, if it's not you that's sinning, who is it that's sinning? He's, and he goes on to say, well, if it's not me, it's my flesh that's sinning. I use this little illustration frequently to understand why this isn't a cop-out here. Let's suppose that I decided I was going to raise a little extra money for a vacation that I wanted to go on, so I decided to stop by several 7-Eleven stores or these little quick stops and, and just commit armed robbery, just actually go ahead and, and rob them and take the cash and run. Now, I'm not suggesting that anybody do that, you understand, because that's not a real healthy plan, but let's suppose for one reason or another, I just did that. And in the process, there I am holding a gun, and I'm going to stick up this this attendant, and I'm going to take all of his money, and I'm going to run off with the money, but he, being way ahead of the game, has already called the cops, and the cops show up, and they arrest me. Stop me, right, catch me right in the act, and they arrest me. Now, what am I going to tell the cop? I'm going to turn around and say to him, it's no longer I that did this, but sin that dwells in me. Isn't that what Paul just said here? Now then, it is no more I that do it but sin that dwells in me. Well, more than likely, the cop is going to say to me, you're right. It's not you that did this. It's sin that dwells in you. I took Alpha. I studied Romans chapter 7. So it's no longer you that did it. I realize that. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm not going to arrest you. I'm just going to arrest your flesh. And I'm going to take your flesh to jail. And I'm going to book your flesh. And I'm going to throw your flesh in jail. Now, the obvious problem with that is look where I'm living. Is this new man that's not robbing? I'm living right here in the middle of the flesh, aren't I? And so if this flesh is going to jail, all of me is going to jail with it. Okay, so when we make this distinction between the real person we are and the sin that is committed in our life, we're not at all using that as some kind of a cop-out. Instead, what we're trying to do is understand what is absolutely essential for us to understand and believe in order to deal with that flesh. And the first thing that's essential is that we believe the gospel that he's revealed to us in Romans chapter 6. The first thing that's absolutely essential is that we believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now look at verse 18. He goes on further to explain, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, you see, he's identifying, separating again himself from his flesh. He says, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. There's nothing good about my flesh. Never has been and never will be. And he goes further to explain, for to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. You see, here's where the real problem is. Paul is able to identify that he is not 
his flesh. But just identifying that, that he is not his flesh, is not sufficient because he can't control that flesh even though he's a brand new person. Now we as Christians, trying to recover from our dysfunctional lifestyle in whatever way, need to come to grips with this important concept. First of all, we need to understand that no matter how hard we try, no matter how many rituals we go through, no matter how many promises we make, no matter how dedicated we try with all our willpower to do what's right and to make ourselves behave, we cannot do it. We cannot possibly make ourselves behave. This is a hard thing for us to come to grips with for several reasons. First of all, it literally destroys our pride. You see, most of us like to have the idea naturally in the flesh that we are a self-made person, that we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, that we can certainly handle life, we can face all of the issues of life, and we can deal with it. This tells us we can't. This tells us there's no way that we can't. We can try with all of our knowledge of good and evil not to do what's wrong and to do what's right, but just the knowledge of good and evil will not save us, will it? All of us already know more good than we can do. All of us already know more wrong than we can keep ourselves from doing. And so the knowledge alone of good and evil is not sufficient to save us, to make us behave. Likewise, if you'll read again what he said in verse 18, he says, for to will is present with me. Here he introduces a second thing that we like to trust in. We like to trust in our willpower. Now, I'm quite certain that Paul, as a Pharisee of Pharisees, had a tremendous amount of willpower. I am certain that we would all be amazed if we knew him personally, what kind of self-discipline this man could exemplify, what kind of willpower he had in his life. But what he tells us here is that willpower, even though it's there, even though he exercises it, even though he chooses to do what's right, and he chooses with all his might not to do what's wrong, he says it's not enough because he goes on to say that even though his willpower is there, how to perform that which is good, he finds not. He can't quite get the job done. So two important principles here. First of all, your knowledge of good and evil is not going to save you. And secondly, your own willpower to do better, to change, to be better won't save you. Let's take a couple practical examples just to illustrate this. I know many of you, like I have from time to time, struggle with being an affluent American, and so we don't have, our problem is not finding enough to eat. Our problem is the fact that we eat too much, and we get, especially after the holiday season, we get into the idea that we need to go on a diet. Now, I read somewhere in a little planner one time that nothing sparks more hope in the human heart than the first three hours of a diet. And I'm quite sure that that hope originates from this fact that we are bound and determined to not eat and to lose weight. But what happens? The fourth hour, we ate everything in the house, right? Why? Because our willpower is not enough. That's why. You see, willpower alone is not enough to cause us to do even what we want to do. Willpower alone is not sufficient. Now, 
We can also see the same thing worked out, and I, I see it in an unfortunate way in the Christian life of people who decide they're not going to sin anymore over one issue or another. You can pick a sin, any sin, and just decide you're not going to do it anymore. Okay, that's sin. I know that's wrong. God says it's wrong. I won't do this any longer. And so what they do is they promise God. They say, God, I promise I am not going to do this anymore. I know you don't like it. I know it's killing me, and I'm not going to do it. And so they try hard not to sin. And boy, they get into it. They just grit their teeth, white-knuckle it, and they try their hardest not to sin. And their understanding of grace as a lifestyle is limited to this, that while they're trying hard not to sin, and they blow it, that grace means they can go back to God, say, God, I'm sorry, I blew it. Forgive me. He forgives them, and so they try harder the second time not to sin. Now, if you've ever done this, if you've ever actually worked through this, about the second time you're trying hard not to sin and you blow it again, you don't want to go back to God at that point, do you? You don't want to say, oh, God, I blew it again the second time now, especially if it was only two days later, you know. I mean, sometimes you can get around it by trying hard for a week or two and make it for a week or two, and you say, ah, that's not so bad. I made it a couple of weeks. I'll go back to God and tell him I'm sorry. But when you go back that second time and say, God, I blew it again. Will you forgive me? You really begin to get nervous at that point. You really begin to wonder. You think, well, he forgave me the first time, but I'm not sure he's going to forgive me the second time. But you go ahead and try hard at anyhow. You say, well, he probably forgave me, and I'm going to try hard now the second time. And then you blow it again. Now, this time you're not going back to God except to blame him. God, you could have kept me from sinning, but you didn't keep me from sinning now, God. I've, I've, I've confessed twice to you now, and you didn't change me now. What's the problem here? It must be your problem. It's not my problem. I'm trying hard. You see, that's what the problem is. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, no, no, you don't need to try hard because your willpower is not enough. To will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not, he said. And he explained further by saying, in verse 19, for the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now then, it is, if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. He repeats essentially the same thing we've already said for emphasis sake. Anytime the Bible says the same thing over twice in one passage, you can count on the fact that that's important. So let's understand what he's saying. He is saying that when we sin, when we are overcome by the flesh that is, is characterized by sin, by mistakes, by dysfunction, when this dysfunction of this flesh, of this sin, overtakes us, he's saying that it's not us that's doing it. Now, why is that so important? Why is it so important that we realize that it's not us? Remember the little diagram that we've, we've put on the board before concerning thoughts, feelings, and behavior. Thoughts precede feelings, and feelings precede behavior. If you're thinking you're sinful, if you're thinking you're dysfunctional, you're going to feel sinful and dysfunctional, and you're ultimately going to behave in a sinful way, in a dysfunctional way. What God is trying to get us to understand through the writings of Paul 
is that our thinking has to be changed first in spite of our behavior and in spite of our feelings our thinking our belief systems have to be changed first and in spite of the fact that you just went out and sinned according to your thinking natural thinking the glorious gospel of Romans 6 remains the same no you did not sin the real person you are created in Christ Jesus cannot sin it was not you who are dead indeed to sin that sinned it is that funky flesh you've got around you that sinned now we've got to come back to that otherwise we'll never exercise faith in God's provisions for us to deal with our dysfunction unless we come back to this foundation we'll never believe God's grace and can never actually deal with sin the way God wants us to deal with his flesh this nature of flesh that still inhabits this body is by grace through faith he wants us to keep on believing who he's made us to be in spite of all the evidence to the contrary because he knows that when you exercise that faith in your thinking that it's going to engender in you a hope a joyful confident expectation about your future and out of that hope you're going to be able to love others and love he tells us in Romans 13 fulfills the whole law you see God wants to create a new person inside of us that will change from the inside out and take over this body he doesn't want us to be trying hard not to sin so we'll get the glory he wants us to believe what he's made us to be in spite of our dysfunction in spite of our behavior in spite of our feelings he wants us to trust him what he has been doing and what he's now doing to save us from the habit and power of dysfunction or sin in our lives now read on with me in the next verse in verse 21 Paul said I find then a law this is a principle this is like the law of gravity you can always count on this happening here I find then a law that when I would do good evil is present with me this is the principle you can always count on whenever you want to do what's right this new person God has made you to be in Christ whenever you as that new person wants to reach out and love other people you want to reach out and minister to other people you want to live like Christ you want to think like Christ you want to commune with the Father anything that's good that you can think of you want to do your job well as a testimony to Christ whatever you can think of that's good whenever you would do good evil is present with you now when we use the term evil we naturally think of the evil one we think of Satan and all of his forces opposing us and I'm not discounting the spiritual war that we're involved in but I want you to understand you've got a worse, en worse enemy than Satan you've got a lot worse enemy than the world system out there under the domination and control of Satan your own worst enemy that you're fighting continuously is your own fleshly nature that you live with every day in the same body you see this is our worst enemy because we go to sleep with this enemy we wake up with this enemy we take a shower with this enemy we go to work with this enemy we eat breakfast with this enemy we interact in our homes with this enemy always at war and this enemy of our own flesh that fleshly nature is the worst enemy that we have as believers because it is that flesh that gives occasion this fleshly nature within us that gives occasion for the other enemies spiritual enemies like Satan and the world around us 
to come into our life. And what Paul is saying then is let's recognize the enemy that we have. Now this is really important in relationships. When I do marriage counseling, family counseling, I'm always striving to teach this to people because it's so absolutely vital that we understand this, that our problem is not the people we live with. Now, we always think it is. Naturally, we think the problem is the people we live with because we can see so clearly their faults. You ever notice that? You ever notice how it's so obvious, the faults that your wives have or that your husbands have or that your children or your parents have? It's so obvious their faults. I mean, we can see clearly with 20-20 vision their flesh. But you see, that's not our real problem. Our real problem is not the flesh of others. Our real problem is our own flesh that keeps us from living functionally in the midst of a sin-cursed world that's falling apart at the seams. The real enemy we have then is our own flesh, and this is what Paul is saying. I find then a law that when I would do good, when I would do good, when I would live like Christ, when I would be Christ to others, evil is present with me. It's that flesh. Read on now. In the next verse he says, by way of explanation, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Here he titles this new man, the inward man. I, the real person I am, delight in the law of God. That means I want to do what's right after the inward man. But note the problem now in verse 23. But I see another law or principle in my members. The members stands for the body here. So there's another thing in my body here, my members, which is the flesh. I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, which is the law of the new man in his mind, the mind of Christ, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members, that flesh. The picture that's being painted in, in very graphic language here is that Paul is a POW to his own flesh, a prisoner of war, if you will. Now just imagine this. This is why the legalistic mentality never works. To beat yourself up with your own expectations on how you ought to be and relate to other people never changes you. To beat up other people up with expectations on how they ought to be won't ever change them for this reason. It's like going into a prisoner of war camp and walking up to a prisoner who has got his hands tied behind his back and tied to his ankles and he's floating in about four or five foot of water with all kinds of garbage floating in it and animals in a little bamboo cage and he's just barely able to get his nose above the water level to breathe and going in and telling him, set yourself free, fool. What are you doing acting like this? How absurd. How absurd is it for us to demand that he get up and act like a soldier? Why? Because you see, he's a prisoner. He's a prisoner of war. Now, what we're describing is the fact that we as Christians, as believers, even though God has made us a brand new person in Christ, are very often a prisoner of war. We are held prisoner by this flesh nature that's still within us, that is contrary to God and us. We are held prisoner. Look at this new man. He is surrounded here by the enemy. He is surrounded entirely by 
his flesh. So that everything he wants to do, he's got to deal with his flesh on first. Every place he wants to go, he's got to deal with his flesh on first. This is what Paul is saying here in verse 23 when he says, I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Now listen to this pitiful cry and hear it echo in your own heart and mind. The pitiful cry is this, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Paul is crying out from the depths of his heart like we cry out from the depths of our heart for deliverance. Now notice he didn't say, by what program shall I deliver myself? Nor did he say, by what plan shall I escape here? He asked, what person is going to set me free? Who shall deliver me? The fact that he said he was wretched describes our natural inward turmoil in this conflict. It's natural and normal for you, even as a believer in Jesus Christ, even as a Christian who knows that you've been born again, who knows that you are a brand new person, it's natural for you to feel deep within your heart a conflict, to feel that you're in bondage, that you've not yet been delivered and to feel wretched because you cannot be like you know you should be. That's the normal Christian condition. And at that point, it's natural then for us to cry out in wretchedness for a deliverer, to cry out for one to save us. Now notice the answer in verse 25. Paul said, who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're going to be studying this answer in the next few sessions particularly, but for right now I want you to see the light bulb has come on to Paul with all of its fullness now. The gospel has begun to flood his soul, his wretched soul. You see, earlier he was condemning himself. He was saying, I am carnal, sold under sin. And then he began to believe what the Spirit had used him to write back in chapter 6. And he says, wait a minute, I'm a new person. I'm a new man in Christ. I want to do what's right. The problem is not with me, per se. The problem is with my flesh. And then he asked, who's going to deliver me from this flesh? Who's going to set me free from this flesh so I can be the real person I am? He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, it's God who's going to deliver us. It's God by the work and person of Jesus that's going to set us free. It's God who saves us now like he saved us before from the guilt and penalty of sin. It's God who now saves us from the very habit and power of sin. We cannot save ourselves now any more than we could save ourselves before. That's very, very important that Christians understand this. 
If there's one issue in the church today that I consider to be more misunderstood than anything else, it's the fact that Christians get the idea that once they're born again, once they've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, once they've come into a personal relationship with God, that they have some kind of mystical ability now to save themselves, to pull themselves up by their spiritual bootstraps, and to make themselves behave. But you see, that would deny the reality of their need for a savior. That would deny use of Jesus. You see, it's almost like we'd say, thank you, Jesus, for getting me out of hell. I appreciate the fact that when I trust in you, I don't have to go to hell when I die. Thank you, and I'll, I'll check you when I, when I get ready to die. I'll come back to you. But for right now, I'm going to live the Christian life. You see, there's pride in that. There's unbelief and pride in that, and it won't work. You see, what Paul is saying here is that we cannot save ourselves. We need a Savior now. I was... A Christian. I've been a Christian for over 30 years. I was saved as a boy when I, over 40 years, I was saved as a boy when I was 11 years old. And I can tell you folks right now that I need Jesus to save me every single day now more than I ever have in my life. You see, you never grow to such a point where you don't need to trust in what Jesus can do for you. You never get to the point where you don't need him anymore. You need him now as your savior as much as you ever will. What do I need him to save me from? I need him to save me from, not the guilt and penalty of sin, which is eternal torment in hell. He's already saved me from that. What I need him to save me from is this flesh, this habit and power of this dysfunctional flesh that keeps me from being the new man he's made me to be, that keeps me from living like Christ. I need him to deliver this flesh and to melt this flesh around me. Now, we are at war within ourselves. We are, are all of us experiencing an, an internal intense conflict within ourselves constantly because this new person is directly opposed to this flesh. A couple examples of that just to help you appreciate it. First of all, from Jesus' own life. You remember when he came into the world, the Son of God, the Lord of glory, humbled himself to take on flesh like ours, and he came into this world. And he began his public ministry. Remember that it's recorded that twice he entered into the temple. First time at the beginning of his public ministry and at the end of his public ministry, just prior to his crucifixion, he came again a second time into the temple. But do you remember the story of what he did in the temple? Do you remember when he came in and he saw the money changers there? See, the money changers were there to make a profit because you could, you could not use Roman money. That was filthy lucre. You could not use Roman money in the temple. You had to use temple money in the temple if you wanted to give an offering. So there would be money changers there that would change your Roman money into temple money, of course, for a small profit. And there, were, there he saw the sacrificial animals, animals that you didn't have to tend to, you didn't have to raise, you didn't have to call out, you didn't have to feed. You could just show up and buy a sacrificial animal that was already kosher for your sacrifice. He saw the merchants in the temple making profit, making gain, making money off of the house of God. And he was filled with righteous indignation. You remember what he did? He turned over those money changers' tables, and he drove those sacrificial animals out of the temple, and he said, Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Unfortunately, 
our father's house is often made a house of merchandise today in American Christianity. I'll save that for another subject, but the point I'm making now is that when Jesus comes into this temple, meaning our bodies, we're told in 1 Corinthians that our bodies are the temple of the Spirit. When he comes to live in this temple, when he comes in this body, and he lives in this new person that you are in this temple, he has not come in just to accept status quo. He has not come in just to kind of kick back and, and relax a little bit. No, he has come in for war, to engage in a battle against that fleshly anti-God nature that still lives in this temple. Now, I know that when we receive Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, immediately there's such a rush, there's such a, a wonderful feeling of salvation, of deliverance, a burden is lifted off of us, depending on who you are and what your circumstances are and how you experience various emotions. Uh, virtually all people say, I have a new peace, I have a new joy in my heart, I have new hope. All these sorts of things happen to us immediately. But if you were like me, when you received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you had all that for about a day. I was saved on a Sunday in a church. On Monday, when I got home after school, here I am, an 11-year-old boy, I came home after school, my mom and my younger brothers and sisters were gone. And I didn't know where they went. I got home to an empty house. You know what hit my mind immediately? What hit my mind, the very first thing that hit my mind was Jesus came back, the rapture happened, took my family away, and I really wasn't saved, and therefore I'm left here alone. I mean, I was spiritually terrorized the day after I trusted in Jesus as my personal Savior. The day after. And that flesh began to work on me. But you know, something else happened then. There was a conflict within in me that began to emerge. And I began to see the working of God in me. When Jesus comes in to live inside, he comes in to deal with that flesh that's in us. He comes in not to be passive, but comes in to be actively involved in cleaning us up from the inside out. Now, it's absolutely essential that we understand then that this conflict within us is not bad. This conflict within us is the work of God. It is God working in us to deal with that fleshly dysfunctional nature we have. It's not something to be avoided at any cost. It's not something to be covered up, swept under the carpet. It's something rather to be understood as God at work within us to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. When we understand that, when we realize that it's God coming in to clean up our temple, just like he came in, Jesus came in to the temple of his day and cleaned it up said make not my father's house a house of merchandise he comes into these temples to clean it up and when we understand that the conflict then does not become a source of condemnation to us now look at the last part of verse 25 right after he says I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord we know God is going to set us free through Jesus Christ our Lord then he goes on to say, So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. We're back to that conflict again, aren't we? Hmm? With the mind, I myself, meaning the new person that I am, wants to do what's right. But with the flesh, 
I do what's wrong. So we're back to that original conflict. Now, note that your Bibles stop right there in chapter 7. They put a period at the end of verse 25, and that's it for the chapter. And we have a tendency to close it up and forget it at that point. But remember that chapter and verse divisions in the Bible are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. There are no original chapter and verse divisions in the Bible. So don't stop there. Go on to look at verse 1 of chapter 8. And this is really important. I want you to understand what he has to say about this conflict inside of each of us that's going on. He says, there is therefore, because of this conflict, now, right now, in the middle of this conflict, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore, that little word therefore, is a bridge between what he just said. There's this conflict inside of us. The real person we are wants to do what's right. The flesh wants to shut it down. There is therefore, because of that conflict, right now, in the middle of that conflict, no condemnation. You see, most people that I talk to in a counseling-type setting are always beating themselves up, not only about their original issues, but by the fact that they, or about the fact that they can't do anything about it, that they've got this conflict inside of them. And they get down on themselves and condemn themselves because of the conflict. The first thing we've got to understand is that just because we have this conflict inside of us doesn't mean that we're no good. You see, if you set as your goal to get rid of the conflict inside of you, so long as you stay in this sin-cursed body, so long as you live in the same body that has the nature of flesh in it, you're always going to have a conflict. And if you set as your goal to get rid of that conflict, you're going to be depressed, feeling sorry for yourself because it's an unreachable goal. You'll never get rid of all the conflict until you leave this present physical body and are clothed upon with a glorious immortal body like Jesus without the presence of sin in it. So long as you live in this present body, you're going to have conflict because of the presence of that flesh. And so our goal is not to get rid of the conflict, but our goal is rather to understand that in spite of the conflict, there is therefore now, right this moment, in the very midst of that conflict, no condemnation. God does not condemn you for your conflict. So don't rush out to get rid of your conflict real quick. Remember, that's God, through Jesus, living inside of you to clean up and deal with that flesh, to actually set you free. The conflict you're experiencing inside over what you ought to do or not do, that conflict should never be a source of condemnation, but rather a source of affirmation. Let me show you graphically on the board here, the person that has no conflict in this sense that we've been talking about. The person that has no conflict is not a new person at all. The person who has no inward turmoil and struggle like we've been studying about is not even a Christian. The person that has no conflict in this world does not know Christ. Only you who have this new man in you that wants to be Christ, only you have the conflict inside. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to you. God does not condemn you. May the Lord grant us the grace and the wisdom to receive the fact that there's no condemnation in spite of our conflict. Thank you. 
Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes. 